Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. We interview philosophers about their new books about across a wide variety of areas, such as social and political philosophy, philosophy of mind and science, metaphysics and epistemology, aesthetics, and many others. Today's interview is with Sarah Pesson, Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Emil and Eva Heck Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Denver. We'll be talking about her new book, Ibn Gabirol's Theology of Desire, Matter and Method in Jewish Medieval Neoplatonism, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. Pesson is committed to upending traditional readings of Solomon Ibn Gabirol and Neoplatonism, a philosophical movement often saddled with a cosmology considered as either bad science or as a kind of invisible floating Kansas in which spatiotemporal talk isn't really about space or time. Pesson's reappraisal begins from the ground up, seeing Ibn Gabirol's cosmo-ontology as a response to the paradox of divine unity, of how God can be both complete, yet also give way to that which is other than himself. Pesson argues that this 11th century Jewish philosopher-poet saw being and beings as emanating from God via a process of divine desire, a kind of precognitive essential yearning to share his goodness forward. This desire infuses the initial grounding element, a positive conception of matter that, contrary to standard views of matter, is prior to and superior to soul and intellect, such that even intellect has matter, and it is utterly distinct from Aristotle's notion of prime matter. Pesson's provocative book is full of surprising insights that reveal the richness of the ideas of what she calls a completely mischaracterized figure and period. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Sarah Pesson. Hi there. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm glad to have you and to be talking about your new book, Ibn Gabirol's Theology of Desire, Matter and Method in Jewish Medieval Platonism. Um, now, Ibn Gabirol is not a figure that, that most of us are, are familiar with. Um, uh, you, he wrote in Arabic or in Judeo-Arabic, um, but the complete texts that we have uh, of his work are Latin translations um, from the 12th century. Uh, they're interspersed with quotations from the original Arabic. Um, and then there are later Hebrew translations. Um, and so for a long time, he was actually thought to be a Muslim thinker or a Christian thinker, um, and even a Christian Augustinian, um, rather than a medieval Jewish poet um, and a follower of Plotinus. Um, so that's that basically is you know how you describe him in the beginning of the book. Um, could you well before we before you introduce us you know sort of more fully to uh, Ibn Gabirol maybe you could introduce us to yourself and your your interest uh, in philosophy as a whole and how you got to focus on Neoplatonism um, and on Ibn Gabirol uh, in particular. Sure, um, I guess when I think back at uh, the journey to Ibn Gabirol. Uh, 
it definitely started, uh, obviously started with my journey uh, in philosophy. I hadn't had a philosophy class ever until I was an undergraduate, um, which I believe, thankfully, is becoming less and less the case as I meet incoming uh, first-year students. I realize more people have had philosophy in high school these days, uh, but I certainly never heard of philosophy. I didn't know anything about philosophy, and so my journey really started um, in middle school and high school with me really loving poetry and science which in retrospect is not odd at all, but I feel at the time was somewhat odd because those weren't normally the two, uh, the two groups that, the groups that went to the poetry things weren't usually the same students that were all jazzed about the chemistry lab. Um, and so when I finally took my first philosophy class in, uh, as an undergraduate, I realized that that was where those two energies were coming from in me. So uh, I always think of uh, philosophy, or at least my interest in philosophy, as sort of bringing together of poetry and science. And so sort of a uh, Going into undergraduate, my first professor, whom um, I just was um, continuously inspired by, Dr. David Schatz, um, he was the first person with whom I ever studied philosophy, um, as it turns out, in a philosophy of law class. And looking back, philosophy of law is not one of the areas that really intrigues me over the overall of, of all of my areas that I've sort of taken an interest in. Uh, but the professor certainly intrigued me and really um, inspired me to sort of think philosophically and, and really hooked me on uh, spending the rest of my life studying philosophy. Um, Dr. Schatz himself uh, taught a number of Maimonides and Jewish philosophy classes. So through my love of philosophy, I came very quickly quickly to a love for Maimonides, um, and through that to a love of medieval philosophy and comparative medieval philosophy and studying Maimonides, it immediately opens up comparative questions of Greek, um, Islamic, Jewish, and Christian thinking in the late ancient and medieval worlds. Um, and really then through Maimonides is how I got to my interest in Neoplatonism, because in reading about Maimonides, I was always reading secondary texts which said, he is a Neoplatonist. He's he's a bit of a Neoplatonist. He's less Neoplatonic than such and so. He's somewhat more Neoplatonic than so and so. Um, he's an Aristotelianized Neoplatonist. He's a Neoplatonic Aristotelian. And I realized that I had no idea of what was being said. Um, the secondary texts which were making these claims uh, made no, you know, it did not explain in a footnote or otherwise what that meant. Um, and when I started uh, in, looking into what that meant. That really uh, changed the rest of my life because I realized that there was um, some summary descriptions of what Neoplatonism was, which immediately struck me as deeply lacking, um, and it really led me on a multi-years multi journey to trying to understand what Neoplatonism is about. Um, and luckily, early on, I had a chance to study um, with Professor Stephen Gersh at Notre Dame, and he um, really is a continuing source of inspiration. His writing and his teaching on Neoplatonism uh, had at the time inspired me and until this day inspires me to try to understand in a deeper and deeper way what Neoplatonism is all about. Um, and so coming then through my journey of learning more about Neoplatonism, um, I then eventually started rethinking about what Maimonides is in terms of Neoplatonism and then was starting to look for who are some of the even more um, sort of paradigmatically Neoplatonic thinkers in Judaism um, and realize that usually Isaac Israeli and Ibn Gabirol are the two kind of heavy hitters pointed to in that regard. And I believe that started a many decades journey with Ibn Gabirol, which I believe is uh, in this book, I, I, I believe for myself, is still the very beginning of that journey. Well, wow. well, can can you introduce uh, introduce some of his major works to us, and and some sort of the some of the textual and translational issues that that you you face with with his work in particular, because he's working with different languages, and we don't we only have translational works in various languages, right? 
uh, sure. So his, um, in terms of his writings, he is uh, within actually within various Jewish traditions even today, and certainly within certain fields of Jewish studies. He's probably most well known for a vast corpus of Hebrew poetry. Um, some of it um, liturgical in nature, and some of it's actually um, both throughout history, but also even contemporarily in in uh, Jewish prayer books. So he has this vast corpus of Hebrew poetry. Some of which I do draw on on the book because obviously this is one thinker, and all of this needs to be brought into one sort of large consideration. Um, so you have that that set of writings. Uh, you also have he he wrote some uh, a, a text on the improvement of the moral qualities, which is basically um, in 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 an uh, investigation of different virtues and vices. Uh, there's a debate as to whether he was the, or what he was or was not the author of something called Mithlar Hapeninim, uh, the cho- a choice choice of pearls, which is a, a book of of maxims of different sort of. Uh, sayings. Uh, in other Jewish philosophers, there's a reference to something of, of, his, of his having written a commentary in the book of Genesis. Uh, so we don't have that, but uh, certainly that would be an intriguing thing to discover at some point, because uh, that would be uh, some of some of his writings in, in about matter and, and form. I could certainly see some interesting ways he might tie that in with Genesis. Um, and again, in, in the works of Ibn Ezra, we're told that he refers to the, the spiritual matter that we'll talk about more today, um, he, that he likens it to the flowing of the river of the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most famously and most sort of, uh, sort of in terms of his philosophical writings is the uh, Yanbu al-Khaya uh, the, uh, in the 11th century, what is translated into the, in the 12th century into Latin as the Fons Vitae, um, the Fountain of Life. And then uh, in the 13th century gets translated into a summary Hebrew edition, uh, Makor Chaim. Uh, and that we can, you know, today we have um, basically in terms of the texts that we work with, we have um, only some extant fragments uh, in the Judeo-Arabic um, in another uh, medieval Jewish philosopher, uh, Moses Ibn Ezra. So we have only a limited number of the original Judeo-Arabic fragments. We, of course, have a huge amount of his Hebrew poetry and these other texts that I mentioned. We do have those. Uh, but in terms of the of the, of the Fons Vitae text, what we have as the most complete version is this 12th century Latin translation, um, which we assume to be a complete translation uh, of that original 11th century text. Um, and so one of the fascinating pieces of this is that um, – in some respects, the Latin is is a more accurate a way to approach the text than the Hebrew, the later Hebrew translation, because the Latin text is more complete. Um, the Hebrew text is, in its very structure, it loses the dialogue structure that the Latin captures of a of a, of a discussion between a teacher and a student, and it's just more clearly the Hebrew is more clearly a summary version of the text. It, it's quite a long translation, so it's not as if it's a short summary, but it's nonetheless a summary. So in that respect, the Latin text is more. Uh, accurate in terms of, of, of presumably conveying to us, you know, verbatim what was said in the original text. On the other hand, the Hebrew text um, actually helps us with certain of the Hebrew terminology um, to to look a bit askance at the Latin translation in terms of what the Latin translators were perhaps tacitly reading into the original Arabic text. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, in that respect, just to talk a little bit about the problem of lenses, um, and this is actually something that's a problem both from people reading the Latin text as well as from people reading the Hebrew text. Um, I would say that there's three problems of lenses um, when people approach the uh, the Franz Vitae um, uh, uh, work. 
one of the lenses is a Kabbalistic lens. So people who are working on that Hebrew text or are more familiar or who are working more broadly with Ibn Gabirol in terms of his Hebrew poetry and then also read The Fountain of Life in its Hebrew translation um, frequently will approach that text as if it is a work of Jewish mysticism. Um, while to be sure, the expression Jewish mysticism refers to a lot of different things, and, and, and there's no, it's certainly possible to read certain aspects of Ibn Gabirol as having somewhat of a mystical quality, if one considers Neoplatonism to have a mystical quality, which I don't myself speak of it that way. Uh, it's nonetheless a mistake to primarily approach that text um, through a Kabbalistic lens. And then in terms of Latin text, the two other lenses that I think people approach that text through are Augustinian and Thomistic lenses. So what all three of the lenses have in common is that they all three fail to read Ibn Gabirol through what I argue is the, uh, the correct Plotinian lens. Um, Plotinus uh, is not obviously directly influential on Ibn Gabirol, but in Ibn Gabirol's immediate um, context, there is the strong, um, a strong context of, of, of the uh, Plotinus translated into Arabic. So uh, Ibn Gabriel is best read in the Plotinian context in terms of his familiarity with and, and sort of the circulation and his conceptual space of uh, such texts as the Theology of Aristotle, which is an Arabic translation of books for uh, translation and edited summary of books four through six of Plotinus's Aeneids. And so the Theology of Aristotle is a very influential text among uh, Neoplatonists of this period, and no reason to think that Ibn Gabriel shouldn't be included in that. Um, and then similarly. We have the Kalam Fimat al Khair, the Discourse on the Pure Good, which um, is a translation and edited summary of parts of Proclus's Elements of Theology, um, and later known as, uh, in its Latin translation as the uh, Liber de Causis, or the Book of Causes. So between the Theology of Aristotle, which is a translation and summary edition of parts of Plotinus, and the Kalam Fimat al Khair, or Liber de Causis, which is a translation and summary of parts of Proclus, it is very safe to say that Ibn Gabriel is operating in deeply Plotinian context. And so what the Kabbalistic, Augustinian, and Thomistic lenses do is miss that as the primary context. And therefore, each of them, in various different ways, misreads Ibn Gabirol on his two kind of famous doctrines or ideas. Uh, all three of those lenses misread Ibn Gabirol on the idea of divine will. And all three of those lenses misread Ibn Gabirol on the idea of spiritual matter. Um, and I could just say briefly um, what the misreadings are, and we could talk more about these notions of divine will and matter, mm -hmm. but just sort of say in brief, um, if you are approaching Ibn Gabriel on will um, in the properly Plotinian context, Ibn Gabriel must be understood as an emanationist, and I argue strongly that he is an emanationist, as are um, thinkers, other um, Islamic uh, thinkers during that time who are influenced by those texts that I mentioned. So Ibn Gabirol is uh, deeply invested in, in emanation and thinks of God as emanating. Um, and so whatever he means by divine will has to be understood as uh, part and parcel of a system of emanation. And in fact, as I argue, it actually, his notion of so-called divine will, which I translate as divine desire, is not only part and parcel of a system of emanation, but it actually, as I argue, points to the very downward flow of emanation from God himself. But we'll leave that aside to a bit later. We can at least say, if you're going to read Divine Will in Ibn Gabriel in his proper Plotinian context, you have to read it as being consistent with a Plotinian emanationist context. Mm 
So Augustinians and Thomistic readers of that text, whatever they're going to see in the notion of the divine will, are actually missing that entirely. And in Augustinian and Aquinas contexts, divine will precisely marks the opposition to the notion of divine emanation. So just, just stating that alone leads us to understand why, if you're approaching him as an Augustinian or through Aquinas lenses, you're going to misunderstand divine will, and you're going to think that just like an Augustine or just like an Aquinas, divine will mark something which opposes emanation, but that's completely incorrect for the case of Ibn Gabriel. If you're approaching Ibn Gabriel through a Kabbalistic lens, you'll at least be on board with the idea that he is a thorough emanationist, because again, if you're a Kabbalist, you're reading people as, reading God as emanating. However, if you're reading him as a Kabbalist, you are seeing the idea of emanation as bringing with it all kinds of other ideas about God. And so, for example, in the Zoharic tradition, the idea of emanation is associated with then 10 divine sefirot and on this very specific vision of the divine plerima. None of that is in Ibn Gabirol. And so through the Kabbalistic lens, the mistake is that people are very on board with the idea of emanation, but are then bringing in a lot of things that have nothing to do with Ibn Gabirol. And again, what all three have in common is a failure to read him in terms of these Platinian texts as opposed to in terms of non-Platinian texts. As it, re- as it relates to matter, just to say very briefly in the three misreadings, if you're Augustinian, you're approaching Ibn Gabirol's idea of spiritual matter as an Augustinian idea of spiritual matter. Leaving aside the details of why that's wrong, we could just say again, summarily, whatever Augustine's, do- whatever Augustine's doctrine of spiritual matter is, is part of an anti-emanationist schema. For Augustine, God creates, he does not emanate. And so whatever spiritual matter is doing in there, it's part of a system which views God as not emanating forward the world. God might emanate internally as it relates to the persons of the Trinity, but in terms of God's relationship to the world in Augustine, as in Aquinas, is not going to have anything to do with emanation, and so Augustinian spiritual matter cannot be understood as having any role in an Ibn Gabirol context of emanation. When you turn to the Kabbalists, Kabbalists see in the Hebrew translation of the um, Fons Vitae text the term yesod, to translate this notion of matter that we'll talk about more um, later. The notion yesod in Hebrew simply means foundation. Um, And as I'll talk more about later, the Hebrew translator used the term yesod, foundation, to translate what is a pseudo-empedoclean idea of matter in Ibn Gabirol. However, when Kabbalists or contemporary readers who are more familiar with Kabbalism read the Hebrew translation and they see the word yesod, they immediately assume or jump to the very weighted idea of yesod, foundation, in the Zoharic system, where it specifically names, yesod is the name for the ninth manifestation of the divine plerima. It's a very, very specific kind of uh, part of the divine reality, and that is not at all what it means in Ibn Gabirol. So again, if you're a Kabbalist or you're reading the text through Kabbalistic lenses, you're seeing the Hebrew translation of a term for spiritual matter as yesod, and you're wrongly reading it as having things to do with this Zoharic conception of the, of the divine, and, and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And if you're in, in, in the Aquinas tradition, you're approaching the notion of, of matter in Ibn Gabirol, of spiritual matter in Ibn Gabirol, as an inappropriate misapplication of Aristotelian ideas of matter. Um, and so, as I sometimes refer to it, Aristotle gone bad. 
For Ibn Gabirol, since we are, we'll talk more about his idea of matter as a deeply Plotinian idea, it is absolutely not appropriate to think of it as a misapplication of Aristotelian matter. Aquinas is very interested in in Aristotelian matter, and that's great, but just because another thinker has a different understanding of matter, it is not the best way to approach it, as we'll see, as a misapplication of Aristotelian matter. So, as it relates to the divine will and as it relates to this notion of spiritual matter, Kabbalistic, Augustinian, and Thomistic lenses have, I think, in the history of philosophy been responsible for a, a large array of misreadings. Wow. Okay. So, well, let's get to some specifics here. I mean, I, 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 well, we just went through a bunch of specifics, but um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, I do want to ask about matter, um, but I want to start instead with um, uh, with desire. Uh, I mean, the title of your book is His Theology of Desire. Um, and one of the things that you, uh, in the first, the first large, the larger chunk of the book um, is devoted to Ibn Gabirol, and then you generalize to, you sort of what what implications this has for Neoplatonism in general. Um, so so sticking first to to his doctrines. Um, so there's a couple core uh, concepts that you introduce and interpretations of them that that you defend. Um, one is the notion of desire. Another is the this notion of, of matter. Um, another is the the hylomorphism or the matter form relationship. Um, and then this this uh, the idea of emanation, right? Um, uh, so let's let's start with desire since it's it's in the title of the book, um, and you start by making clear that. Um, uh, this is a sense of desire that is not sexual desire, but it sounded more like yearning or something of that sort. Um, so I was just wondering if you could say something about the nature of, of desire, you know, in, in Ibn, uh, Ibn Gabirol. Um, both desire, I, I take it there's divine desire and then there's the desire that, you know, living beings or, or everything um, uh, has. Um, uh, because uh, you describe uh, our desire as desire for something of the goodness of God or desire for wisdom, goodness, and God. And that, that obviously can't be what, what God desires if there's a divine sort of desire. So could you clarify, you know, the notion of desire that's operative um, in Ibn, Ibn Gavirol and, and what, the, what the various objects of desire are? Uh, sure. I'll start with the notion of divine desire, um, and that sort of, um, you know, I, I refer in the title to the theology of desire, and then I speak throughout um, of, of Ibn Gabriel in terms of, you know, replacing the famous description of him in the history of philosophy in terms of a doctrine of divine will, um, which is translating the idea in Ibn Gabriel of divine irada, a word that can absolutely be translated as will, but can also be translated as desire. Um, so I go ahead in my project for various reasons that I can talk about um, more as we get further into the discussion of this divine will or divine desire. Um, but I, I translate, again, I speak of a theology of desire, and I replace this idea of a divine will with, um, for the Arabic term that's normally translated as divine will, I, I put instead divine desire. So the first thing to note um, is that in talking about the notion of divine desire, I don't mean in any way to suggest some difference between like the notion of yearning. I think that's absolutely right. I could have also spoken of a divine yearning. 
Um, and in fact, in this context, I also could have spoken of divine love. And so the first thing to um, note is that um, certainly divine yearning and divine desire, yes, I, I would be happy to use those interchangeably, and I would also be happy to use divine love interchangeably. What's, what's an, it's sort of a side point, but one that's important to note, as especially as it relates to, um, you know, let's say desire or yearning on the one hand and the notion of love on the other, there's, I believe, in the history of philosophy, um, an overly concretized sense that there is a strong uh, difference between the notion of love and let's just stick with of the desire and yearning terms. Let's just say desire. Um, this strong idea that there's, you know, love on the one hand and, and desire on the other hand is um, quite clearly a vestige of, of Christian theology. Um, in various Protestant and Catholic traditions, in spite of the very many differences, um, it needs to be pointed out that in the history of Greek, Jewish, and Islamic Neoplatonism, the idea of translating and speaking of different terms of, in Arabic or, you know, in, in the case of Ibn Gabirol and his Islamic Neoplatonic context, there's lots of words being used, words that normally translated as love, norms that, words that normally translated as desire. And there's um, really, at least in my work, I don't see any important difference between how those terms are being used. And so it's important to alert any reader or listener in this case who might be uh, more familiar with um, the history of philosophy's treatment of desire versus love or who might themselves be aware of the Christian theological differences between those terms and eros and agape and things like this, that that really does not apply to the, um, to the Neoplatonic milieu that I'm working in. And so I will use the terms love and desire interchangeably, um, and I decided to go with divine desire, but I could easily replace the word desire in the entire text with the word love. So that's just something I'll put um, as, a, as an aside. So what I mean by, and I'll just go on from here to speak of it in terms of divine desire, what I mean by divine desire primarily um, is meant to signify um, God's desire to share his goodness forward. Um, that's a kind of critical and key concept in Ibn Gabirol as in the general tradition of Neoplatonism. Um, and that's something that I really mean to signify first and foremost, the idea that in um, it, it's very similar to the idea of what is actually signified by the notion of emanation. It's pointing to the idea that God flows forward as opposed to not flowing forward. So divine desire primarily, and I'll say more about it both in the, you know here, but then also throughout in talking about different subtleties. I think the first and primary thing that folks should have in mind when they hear the term divine desire is the idea that God desires to share of His own goodness forward. So that's kind of the key idea. That said, um, we have to also keep in mind, and I think it's important at this point to think about Ibn Gabirol's broader context in Neoplatonism um, in terms of the idea of apophasis. Apophasis, um, sometimes described or talked about in terms of negative theology, is a conceptual um, and methodological uh, comportment to the subject of studying God. Um, it's an awareness and sensitivity to the fact that when speaking of God and when conceptualizing God, um, language and human conception fails. And so in an important sense, it's important to keep in mind that Ibn Gabirol is working within that context. I would actually add that emanation itself as a theory, um, I actually view as itself a way of pointing to that fact of the failure of language. Um, emanation is sometimes viewed as a kind of doctrine, which is somehow describing something in a certain way. I actually think the very idea of emanation is meant to point to the failure of language as it relates to the divine. And so Ibn Gabirol is working within this kind of context in which it is clear to him that speaking of God has its limits. 
in the Aristotelian Neoplatonic context, that there is this sensitivity as well. And you find first and foremost that God is described in more Aristotelian Neoplatonic contexts, in spite of their awareness of the fact that you can't really describe God, there is a strong association of God as a pure intellect. When we turn to Ibn Gabirol's, um, what I would consider to be Ibn Gabirol's a sort of less Aristotelian Neoplatonic context, as for example in the theology of Aristotle, we actually find um, a, a sort of uh, a sensitivity that even speaking of God in terms of an intellect is, is not the best way to go. In the theology of Aristotle, what you find is a sensitivity that God gives forth without reflection. Um, and in this respect, we can say that God's primary act of creation or emanation is an act of thoughtlessness. Now, out of uh, that context, and it's very interesting to me that in spite of all theologies recognizing the limits of language, I think that nonetheless, in the history of Western thought at least, when people hear the description of God as thoughtless, there's a knee-jerk sense that, woo, that's pretty impious, or that's a pretty low-level description of God. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating and critical, and part of what I aim to point to with the expression desire as something which is precognitive and, and a reality about God which is before his reality as an intellect, is related to this idea in the theology of Aristotle that God is a kind of thoughtlessness that he creates or emanates without reflection. That is meant in the sense that his own most essence is so good that it cannot help but to share forth. So this idea of the desire is actually contained, I think, in this idea of God as so great as to sort of be a step above being described in terms of intellection. It's not that he creates or emanates because he thinks it through. Rather, his desire to share his goodness forward comes not from a, of a consideration or from an intellectual exercise, but it comes from the very fabric of his own most being. Uh, the theology of Aristotle describes this as an intense repose, a kind of, again, precognitive desire that is that in its being pre-intellect is is even more deeply related to the essence of who God is. So that's another element that I hope to capture with the idea of desire, of divine desire, not just that it is this desire to share forth something of his own goodness, but it is actually a, a desire which precedes even reflection and precedes even intellection. It's a desire to share forth of himself, which comes from the very nature of himself, Something that in, Plata in, the, in the Plato's Timaeus um, is described in terms of God's being, uh, quote unquote, without jealousy. So that's part of the other thing that I mean to convey, um, is that this sharing forth of the goodness is part of the deepest conception of God in terms of an essential goodness. Well, how about, um, the, so the, our desire, okay, so two questions, sort of. Um, one is uh, our desire for, as, as you put it, the wisdom, goodness, for wisdom, goodness, and God. And, and also you use the phrase uh, desire for something of the goodness of God. Um, is that uh, similarly non-cognitive, or is that just something that emanates uh, from, from our being? Um, and then the the second related question uh, raised by what what you just said is um, the the apophatic reading um, seems to open up a space in which uh, you know if 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 language is if our language is not capturing 
right, or cannot capture um, the the sorts of uh, you know whatever it is that 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 we're trying to indicate or, or point to, as you as you put it. Um, then then there's a, a gap uh, of you know where we could be getting it all wrong, right? Um, yeah. So 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 there's two questions there. You know, is the nature of our desire um, similarly non-cognitive and 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 how how do we how are we sure that um, that somehow we're not getting getting it all wrong because our language doesn't doesn't let us describe things the right way? So on the first point, um, I, in the case of um, human beings, and in all for Ibn Gabirol, this idea of divine desire um, uh, is again this sharing forth of the divine goodness. Um, it shares forth in a way that makes it, we can say, the ground of being, the ground of all beings, and the ground of human beings. So this sharing forth of God's goodness, that is the ground of being itself, and it is the ground, therefore, of all beings, and including human beings. So as we think about the case of human beings, and this would apply in different ways also in the way Neoplatonists even think about beings, but we'll just speak of human beings, um, it is absolutely the case in this context that the human being's first reality, as it were, not not speaking temporally, but sort of ontological priority, um, the, the human being's grounding is absolutely related to this ground of being. So God's desire for goodness winds up being the ground of all being, all beings, and of human being. And this is absolutely, it's, um, let's not think of it in terms of like when we normally say like, oh, a human desires after a piece of chocolate or whatever. We're now talking about a kind of a desire, which is a ground for being. And that desire in particular, and this is something that you find very deeply in, in Platonic and Neoplatonic and Pythagorean contexts. It's a desire deeply towards goodness, and which I describe as, as alternatively, it's a desire towards goodness, it's a desire towards something of the goodness of God, it's a desire towards God, it's a desire towards wisdom. I think all of those conceptually kind of interplay with one another. Um, but it is not to say that the desire then for other things isn't ultimately related to this grounding desire, but um, I think primarily to think of the human's grounding desire as a desire for goodness or as a desire for something of the goodness of God helps us understand the foundation of the human being's being and the foundation of the human being's intellect. And so in this respect, intellect is itself grounded in this desire for something of the goodness of God in the case of humans. So I absolutely think that that is something that carries through from thinking about desire in the case of God as something which is coming prior to, if we think of it in the context of the theology of Aristotle, to thinking of God in terms of, 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 of thought and in terms of making decisions. I think in the case of the human being, that is um, an appropriate extension. And for Ibn Gabirol, who's you know, comfortable speaking in terms of uh, imitatio dei or the sort of you know, imitation of God or ideas coming from the opening uh, you know, books of Genesis of us being created in the image of God, just like in God, that desire um, related to goodness grounds um, intellect and is before intellect, again, not temporally, but ontologically. Um, in the case of the human being, that grounding desire for something of goodness or something of the goodness of God is that which is most essential 
most essential about us. And in that respect, um, I think that sort of um, uh, sort of suggests some ways of rereading uh, the conception of intellect in certain, at least certain medieval um, Neoplatonic traditions. Um, of course, intellect is important and is going to be the next step in terms of how we, we then utilize the intellect in order to complete our journey or to get our journey going towards goodness. But this idea that there is a receptivity which comes before intellect is critical for Ibn Gabirol and is in fact precisely what he means by claiming that there is a spiritual matter at the core of even intellect. Um, when Ibn Gabirol emphasizes that there is a spiritual matter at the core of even intellect, what he is pointing to is exactly what I just said. He is pointing to the idea that there is some kind of a, of a, of a, of a desire or a yearning, um, a, a receptivity to goodness, which is the ground for our very being and which is the ground for anything else about us, including intellect. So that's actually a very beautiful and very deep insight, as opposed to, I think, how it's sometimes caricatured as, oh, Ibn Gabriel thinks that our soul has like this weird material thing floating around in it. So we'll talk more about that and we'll talk more about his idea of matter. Right. But that sort of, again, connects. Now, as to your second question, in terms of apophasis as opening a kind of space in which, you know, these thinkers are basically acknowledging um, and I'm highlighting uh, on their behalf that, you know, language is failing. And so how can we ensure that we're not getting something wrong? I think that in this respect, um, I think that's a it helps us. It helps force us to rethink what we think these philosophers are are trying to do. So, um, in other words, if we think of their um cosmology and, and theology primarily as a as a an attempt on their part to spell out a bunch of stuff um floating around upstairs then not only could we kind of look at their outcome results and say well that's interesting but uh you know i don't know if i believe in that or i don't know if that's correct or you know scientific cosmology has you know contemporarily shown that there's not layers of matter floating around so we'll discard what they're coming up with one of the things I find fascinating is when we take seriously apophasis, we really, unless we're being extremely uncharitable, we must rethink what it is that they're doing. And so I really think of Neoplatonic cosmology and theology um, as more of an attempt to understand the grounds of the self and the grounds of being than an attempt to spell out something which they themselves are the ones who told us can't be spelled out. Okay. Um, well, let me, there was a, another question related, although I, I do want to get your, your discussion of matter going, because that was, that was very interesting. Um, uh, this is a, you know, sort of a universal, obviously, you know, cosmology. And so, um, uh, although you don't, I, I'm not sure if you stated explicitly, but I mean, this is not just, you know, creatures like ourselves um, that desire, but also, you know, inanimate stuff like rocks or grass, things like that. Is that correct? Um, yes, in that respect. And again, that's why even in the case of thinking of it in us, the, the kind of grounding desire for goodness should be thought of separately from desire, um, maybe a few levels up for things other than it, it, there's a I mean, there's, I think, a, a different way of thinking about um, you know, there are different kinds of desires, and ultimately they are related to this grounding desire for goodness. But yes, this grounding desire for goodness is a ground for being itself, and therefore for for anything that has that any existent okay. would be typified in terms of this. Um, wh whereas in a Platonic system, we might talk about everything, including blades of grass, um, you know, manifesting first and foremost being. 
Um, what I want to shift us to recognizing an Ibn Gabi role um, coming out of, I think, a broader set of Neoplatonic intuitions um, is that what everything has, in addition to being, is a grounding desire towards being or a grounding desire towards goodness. So those are actually related, I think, again, if we think of it in terms of a Platonic context where all things have being, here um, what's being emphasized is all things, and as much as they have being, are primarily rooted in that about God which precedes being, namely a desire towards being or a desire towards goodness. Okay, so this 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 helps explain, I think, and you you can explain uh, a bit better, I think, um, why um, he has, as as you put it, such a such a positive, nice view of matter. Why he has such nice nice things to say about matter, um, which is you know, which is fairly odd, uh, at least. Um, you know, one generally thinks coming from a Platonic or Neoplatonic tradition. Uh, you know, all the good stuff is is in the intellectual, you know, non-material sphere. Um, so, uh, so he obviously has to be uh, putting forward a very different view of what matter is. Um, it's pure. It's higher, uh, which is again a kind of an an odd way to think about matter, at least historically. Um, right. Um, and as you put it, it's a pseudo-Empedoclean grounding element um, from which everything else, including the soul, uh, emanates or falls downward. Um, so that puts matter above soul, which is, again, you know, very odd. Um, so can you say a bit about this this uh, this view of matter? Yes, absolutely. And so um, it's helpful, as you were saying, to sort of emphasize uh, sort of how the notion of matter is more normally or sort of more characteristically in the history of philosophy seen in negative terms. Um, and I would say just to start that Ibn Gabirol additionally has this negative sense of matter. So I would say that what he's doing is actually adding a way of thinking about matter. Um, and not only, you know, he himself has negative associations with matter, but in talking about this kind of grounding matter, um, what I call the grounding element, he is uh, shifting our thinking to a different way of thinking about matter or perhaps a different matter. So that's an interesting, I mean, um, uh, one might put it in one way or another, uh, but he's, he, he additionally has these negative conceptions. So to just, you know, highlight or, or rehearse our intuitions about the, the sort of negative ideas about matter, which again, he himself has, you have in a platonic context, um, uh, the idea of the uh, chaos of the receptacle. Now, whatever in, in the Platonic context and later ancient commentaries, uh, the, the, the dissonance between how the receptacle is, what the receptacle is and how it relates to matter, we'll leave that aside. But let's just say that it has led in certainly a Platonic context, certainly to an association of matter as a chaotic um, kind of uh, counterpoint to reason. So you have that, I mean, again, in, in, in the Timaeus, the idea of this uh, receptacle um, that certainly, at least in certain later Neoplatonists, comes into a kind of conceptual alignment with materiality, is seen as the seat of becoming, as it were, in opposition to being, in opposition to reason. So that certainly gives a, a large opening to kind of negative associations. Um, you also have in Plato, again, in the general idea of the realm of being versus the realm of becoming, where, where uh, materiality is associated with the realm of becoming, again, even if not in the way Plato himself speaks, certainly in the way that later Platonists and Neoplatonists speak, and then also in Plato, the general idea of bodiliness um, and the sensory realm as a shadow and as a prison. So working from a, a background in, with you know, Plato in the background, you certainly have a lot of kind of uh, impetus for reading, um, uh, whether it's receptacle or whether it's corporeality. And 
and, and to the extent that both of those get connected up with materiality um, in, in later thinkers, you have a lot of negative associations of the material as that which stands in contrast to uh, reasoning and to being in a negative way. You also then have, in, in a Neoplatonic context, this uh, leads directly to a very um, firm set of conversations that talk about materiality in terms of privation, um, that you're falling away from the purity of, um, in the case of Plato, from the purity of the realm of being. In the case of the Neoplatonists or Plotinus himself, who emphasizes that God himself is above being, you're falling away um, in materiality. Your, your privation is not only a privation of goodness and of, um, I'm sorry, it's not only privation of being, uh, but for for in Plotinus, it's also a privation from God himself, which is goodness. So again, in the Neoplatonic tradition, following on a lot of these Plotinian, and you find also in Pythagorean strains, you have this kind of a whole set of, a whole concept space in which you can totally understand why materiality is negative. You then move to Aristotle. Aristotle himself has a more um, balanced approach to form and matter. His entire hylomorphic analysis is talking about how important it is to recognize that when you're talking about an item in the world, you really do have to think about its form, but also its matter. So you could say in Aristotle, there isn't really the sort of same basis for going, you know, very negative about matter. That said, and even his hylomorphic analyses, um, you do find that uh, intellect is itself pure form. And so even in Aristotle, where there's a more balanced treatment of form and matter, uh, I don't think it would be controversial to suggest that on the whole, and even if one wants to argue that this isn't the case in Aristotle, although I think it is, but certainly in later traditions for reading Aristotle, Aristotelian and Platonic material and Neoplatonic material, the idea that you know even within a hylomorphic context of Aristotle that the form is still better than the matter, I think that's uh, certainly something that was very uh, that, that you find very very clearly in the history of philosophy, um, and then furthermore. To the extent that you can see the way in that even in hylomorphic discussions for, for, for Aristotelians, um, the, the form is uh, somewhat more exalted than the matter, you still you also find in, in, in Aristotle, specifically in his discussion on generation and corruption, he talks about prime matter. And whether Aristotle himself was committed to prime matter is a matter for discussion and, and, and scholars debate and say that he actually isn't, and some say he is. That aside... Plenty of late ancient and medieval Aristotelians were quite confident that Aristotle did believe an idea of prime matter, and prime matter is something pr uh, primarily or, or specifically that they see Aristotle as having posited to solve uh, the question of elemental change. Prime matter is that which underlies elemental change. Um, and so in that context, prime matter also can start to take on negative implications because it is the it does not in Aristotle, but for later Neoplatonic Aristotelians who are reading his treatment of prime matter in terms of in its role in elemental change, it would take on negative implications again because it is associated as the seat of corporeality. It is that thing which is present in all terrestrial beings. And while Aristotle himself doesn't compare the terrestrial realm to a realm of being in a platonic sense, the Aristotelian Neoplatonists certainly would. So both from Plato um, backgrounds and uh, Platinian backgrounds and Aristotelian backgrounds, there's plenty of reasons to start talking about matter in negative ways, and Ibn Gabirol himself has that in his writings as well. However, 
we now have an Ibn Gabi role in his claim that there is matter in all things. So this is what is famously described in later Christian uh, medieval texts as Ibn Gabi role's so-called doctrine of universal hylomorphism. The doctrine of universal hylomorphism is designed or is understood as taking Aristotelian hylomorphism and extending it. So whereas Aristotle thinks that all corporeal things have form and matter, Ibn Gabi role goes further and claims that even souls and even intellects have form and matter. Um, and again, this idea is seen by Franciscans, followers of, of Augustine's spiritual matter, um, as a great idea, even though, as I mentioned earlier, that's not what uh, Ibn Gabriel is doing. Uh, he's not doing what Augustine is doing. And then Aquinas and other um, folks working in Dominican traditions and other philosophical traditions, Aristotelian traditions, found this idea of universal hylomorphism to be ridiculous and uh, spurious at best and just sort of feeble-minded at worst that you know just because Aristotle says that um, you know corporeal things have form and matter why in the world would you think that you would want to say that even intellects have form and matter but this is what universal hylomorphism is it's the claim that even intellects or and souls have form and matter um, and let's just distill that for our purposes to the claim that even intellects have matter that's what's disturbing to the history of philosophy or in the case of Augustinians good and not disturbing but let's leave Augustinians aside for the rest of readers in philosophy who are interested in Aristotle this claim is what's disturbing in Ibn Gabirol the idea that even intellects have matter and so in addition to Ibn Gabirol's sort of regular set of negative ideas about matter, Ibn Gabirol is here in his claim that even intellects have matter, drawing on a specifically non-Aristotelian and non-Platonic um, idea. It's an idea, I argue, that we find in Plotinus. Now, Plotinus um, is not, it's not clear where uh, that, the, that the places where Plotinus speaks about this kind of matter, it's not clear that these were available in Arabic translations. So, I'm not quite clear on how uh, one can make two claims, either that Ibn Gabirol is adopting a concept that you find also in Plotinus, or one can say that at some point we will find that, in fact, much more of Plotinus was available in Arabic translation than we are currently aware of. Either way, uh, let me just stick with the conceptual uh, connection without worrying about how, if any, there is a historical connection. Um, Ibn Gabirol, in his claim that even intellects have matter, is simply giving voice to something that we find in Plotinus, who, again, in addition to all of his negative ideas about matter, Plotinus has a very di different discussion, which is called intelligible matter. Parenthetically, Aristotle also talks of intelligible matter, and it's not the same discussion. So for uh, listeners who are familiar with Aristotelian intelligible matter, put that aside, because that's not what Plotinus is best understood in terms of. So in a couple of places in the Aeneids, Plotinus speaks about intelligible matter, which is primarily um, the best way to understand intelligible matter is it is, well, where he places it, so to speak, um, is between God and intellect. And so just exactly like we find in Ibn Gabirol, there is a matter which underlies even intellect. And the reason that in Ibn Gabirol's case, this is referred to as a pseudo-Empedoclean idea, we find this idea of a material reality, even foundational to the first manifestation of uh, universal intellect. We find this not only in Ibn Gabirol, but in a range of other uh, the traditions that have been referred to as pseudo-empedoclean. 
Um, so we find this in other Islamic and Jewish thinkers as well. And so what is this idea of intelligible matter? And in the case of Ibn Gabirol in the Arabic, he is talking about al-unsur al-awl, something that unfortunately gets translated into the Latin as materia prima, which of course gets translated into English as prime matter, and presumably completely misses the point because it encourages readers to think what he's talking about is Aristotelian prime matter, right. which if he was thinking that this is what Aristotelian prime matter is, then they would be perfectly reasonable to conclude that he doesn't understand Aristotle. But there's another example of where the Latin translation gets us into trouble. If we look at his original Arabic, it's al-unsur al-awl, which means literally first element. The word um, al-unsur is not the normal word for Aristotelian matter that we find in Ibn Gabirol, and it links up in Arabic contextually and historically to claims being made at the same time in other texts um, in Arabic um, and in Hebrew as well that talk about this kind of a spiritual kind of elemental um, grounding that grounds even intellect. And so I, I translate this in my work as grounding element. So what we're talking about, Ibn Gabirol's grounding element that we find in other pseudo-empedoclean traditions, or whether we're talking about um, Plotinus's intelligible matter, what both of those are is, a again, pointing to a kind of matter that exists at the very inception of intellect itself. And again, within the emanationist system, God is normally understood, even in Plotinus, as giving way to intellect, to a universal intellect. So where Plotinus is putting this idea is, in the description of God's giving way from himself to intellect, Plotinus introduces the idea of intelligible matter. And that's exactly conceptually where the idea of grounding element fits into Ibn Gabirol. And so what, what is this, if we think of it carefully for, for Plotinus as for Ibn Gabirol? It is clearly not the insertion of some Aristotelian prime matter up in the middle of nowhere, but what it also is, is it's not best thought of as a bit of material stuff in the way that we perhaps think about Aristotelian prime matter, although I'll mention as an aside that that itself is a little tricky, that we think about prime matter as a an X I know not what is a conceptually problematic move even when we're talking about Aristotelian prime matter. But if we're talking about this exalted matter, again, intelligible matter in Plotinus, grounding element in Ibn Gabirol, what it is is essentially this. It's a uniquely Neoplatonic way of giving voice to what I call and what I referred to briefly before as the paradox of divine unity. The paradox of divine unity is the idea which lies at the heart of Neoplatonic um, cosmology and, emana uh, and emanation discussions. Uh, the paradox of divine unity is the realization and sensitivity on the part of the Neoplatonist that God is himself at once completely whole in and of himself and completely um, sort of centered and, and, and full in himself, together, paradoxically, with the idea that God is also, first and foremost, primarily such that he gives way to um, things that are other than himself. This is the paradox of divine unity, and in fact, the very idea of emanation, as I mentioned earlier, is meant to draw attention to this paradox. In similar way... The idea of intelligible matter or grounding element is precisely an, a conceptual move designed to draw our attention to this paradox. So in other words, we say that God flows forth into intellect. We find that idea in Plotinus and in Ibn Gabirol. But then conceptually, the thinker asks us to stop. 
and recognize that what we've just described is a paradox, a paradox of divine unity, and that what we should be focusing on is the idea that God is giving way to something, but that God is also in and of, in and of himself complete. And this is a, is a mystery that lies at their heart of the understanding of the mystery of being. And so in speaking, in drawing our attention to this mystery, what they are doing is talking about the idea of a materiality that lies between, as it were, God and intellect. It's a way of drawing attention to a first moment, as it were, of God's downward disclosure. That kind of exalted materiality is, again, a kind of receptivity to the goodness of God. But it then flows forth into the fullness of intellect, which then flows forth into the full reality of being and and becoming according to the Neoplatonists. But what that high matter is, is best thought of as a way of pointing to the mystery of God's own disclosure as a problematic paradox. And that is actually what it is in in Plotinus, this idea that God first reveals himself in this moment of, of materiality, it is the same conceptual space that it plays in Ibn Gabirol. So again, it's not corporeal prime matter. It's not the Timaeus receptacle of becoming, and therefore it lacks all negative connotations. And we might clarify to say that this matter, it's not only different in content from those other things, but it's different in kind, or maybe to say it stems from a methodologically different project. So specifically comparing it with Aristotelian prime matter, where Aristotelian prime matter in Aristotle is the answer to an empirical physics question, how does elemental change work? The question that's being asked here, to which intelligible matter or grounding element is the answer, is part of a methodologically completely different realm. And the question is something like, how do we honor the unknowableness and paradoxicalness of the divine move from God himself to anything other than himself. That's the paradox of divine unity, and that, I argue, is what this notion of spiritual matter is designed not exactly to answer, but to draw attention to. So, so let, me, let me just... I'll, I'll say the question kind of baldly, but why call it matter? In other words, if, if, you're, if you're calling it matter, uh, you know, wh- whatever else you, you, you qualify that with, um, you're, you're drawing attention to something that we normally think of in, in all these other terms. Um, negative or positive doesn't matter. Just as, uh, you know, some, you know, stuff, you know, the, you know, the, the, the stuff of the universe. Um, so if it, if it is posited for a completely different, you know, sort of, we're not answering a kind of a, a pseudoscientific or, or, semi-scientific question we're, we're answering a question about um uh, uh you know a paradox right a theological paradox um what is it about why is the term matter being used in this completely different way i, I have we just introduced some completely different uh concept or is there a relationship between them that, that makes sense of the idea that we're calling it matter? Yes, and I think absolutely. And this is what's fascinating and what I was saying even earlier, that I think some of the ways we think about these neg- matter, you know, especially Aristotelian prime matter or whatever, I think are themselves kind of um, 
too closely and too quickly tied to a vision on our part of a bunch of stuff. Um, and if we really push ourselves to try to conceptualize X, I know not what, and to put it in Lockean terms, um, to the extent that Aristotle, again, there's debate that Aristotle does not himself have the notion of prime matter, but certainly in later, late ancient and medieval commentary traditions on Aristotle, he does have an idea of prime matter, or rather to say they, they were very, many Aristotelians were very excited about the idea of prime matter, and um, at least in some contemporary scholarship, folks describe that, again, as an X I know not what. I think part of the, the issue here is that that X I know not what is itself not stuff. So let me put it this way. I think there's two concepts that matter, that are true of matter, which is exactly why it is the appropriate concept for them. So the first, the first um, you know, thing about matter is privation. And so when we think about matter in terms of sort of, again, this negative conception of matter, um, it certainly demarcates privation. It's not the fullness of God himself. It's not, it's not only not the fullness of God himself and not the fullness of being itself or intellect itself, but it itself is the principle that receives uh, form and form sort of brings being with it. So we understand it in terms of privation and the sort of negative kind of matter. Privation is part of why it's so negative. However... Privation in and of itself does not necessarily have to be negative only. So if we then extend the idea of privation to this spiritual matter, what is absolutely being emphasized is that whatever comes after God is not God. And so that respect, in that respect, it absolutely emphasizes the same, it, 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 it plays with the idea of privation, just like lower matter plays with privation. And in that respect, it also points to something negative, namely, it is fallen short of God. Whatever comes after God is fallen short of God. However, whereas in the case of the sort of, you know, lower matter, that's primarily negative and solely negative, mm. in case of describing the after God or what comes after God. I think this is true of Plotinus, but I will certainly say it's true of um, Ibn Gabirol, who plays and, and sort of integrates in uh, biblical ideas. But it's certainly also true of Plotinus, who, who is not himself and argues against Gnosticism. For these thinkers, although in one sense, everything other than God can be seen as privation because it's not God. Well, everything other than God can also be seen as beautiful. And certainly in, in Ibn Gabirol, in a tradition coming, you know, together with uh, in the Genesis idea that God beheld and everything he made was good. But again, I think this is present also in Plotinus to the extent that Plotinus is not a Gnostic. These are thinkers who find a double value to the idea of what is not God. On the one hand, it is privative. It has fallen away from God. And on the other hand, that privation marks the opening onto nothing less than being itself. And so that latter description, um, in some way, and that's sort of an interesting point, you might even apply that description to the so-called lower matter or negative matter. But certainly in the context of speaking of this spiritual matter, this idea that in its privation it opens the door to being and beings and to the bounty of God's manifestation of, in, in all of creation, it's, it's perfect that they speak about matter because it's drawing on the idea of privation and yet that privation marks the possibility of something rather than nothing. That's one of the descriptions, privation, which I think makes it especially suitable. The related description that you find also of lower matter is in terms of receptivity. 
and receptivity and desire are both languages that you find in Aristotelian discussions of, of prime matter um, or any kinds of lower matter, even if it's not prime matter per se. Um, the idea that matter is receptive and that it desires after form, those are common descriptions also of this, you know, let's say, lower matter in, in Aristotelian context. But again, here we have a perfect and exactly why they would want to use the idea of matter in an in upper kind of way. This idea of receptivity um, and desire, that's perfect, because what we now are describing is the, the thing that first manifests after God is being described as a locus of receptivity. You're going to want to you call it matter, because matter is precisely the locus of privation and the locus of receptivity, and in that respect, um, and of desire. And in that, the lower matter is described in terms of privation, receptivity, and desire, those are the three perfect adjectives that you want as you reflect upon the mystery and paradox of what it means for God to give way to being. That first manifestation outside of God is a, a privation from God, which in its receptivity to receive the fullness of the goodness of God gives way to the bounty and beauty of all of being. So it's, it, it works. Yeah, um, love it. We're we're running out of time, unfortunately. Um, so the, there was one last question, and and I guess if you can answer sort of briefly um, uh, at the very end. I mean, the last two three chapters of the book, um, you you sort of generalize. You you approach. You you start to to talk about what. Um, what your analysis, uh, your interpretation of Ibn Gabirol implies for our understanding of Neoplatonism in general. And um, in particular, in, in chapter nine, um, you talk about ways in which um, uh, Neoplatonism shouldn't be uh, considered as, you know, sort of outdated science. Um, and it's not an attempt to find what you call an invisible floating Kansas, which I thought to be a very interesting description. Um, um, so, the, I, so, what, so if maybe you could say a word about, um, you know, what what this this way we should see Neoplatonism, you know, instead, um, and also if you could, you know, kind of tie this in to, um, you know, sort of current views of cosmology, which are, you know purely in terms of what you might call, you know, lower matter. Yeah. And so, I mean, for me, uh, it seems that thinking of Neoplatonism, which we frequently describe as Neoplatonic cosmology or cosmoontology, um, in terms of or in any kind of sort of um, analogy with or an extension with, uh, you know, any kind of modern or contemporary cosmology that is sort of an empirical kind of driven science is deeply wrong. Um, in the sense, not only that the content is different, um, you know, I, whatever a contemporary cosmology account is going to be speaking of, that, you know, the content of whatever they're speaking of is different than the content of whatever uh, Neoplatonists, Sibin Gabriel, Plotinus, and others are speaking about. But what's really critical, and I, I mentioned this um, once or maybe twice in, in the way I've presented some of my, my, my responses, what's really critical is for, um, for readers of Neoplatonism to keep in the front of their mind that apophasis, the idea that, you know, Neoplatonists think that, you know, language fails at a certain point when they're speaking about God, and furthermore, their, their sensitivity and reminder that whatever they're doing with their words, that all of their spatial and temporal metaphors are neither to be taken spatially nor temporally, almost every single, you know, summary of Neoplatonism will have those three points. 
Neoplatonists think that there's a failure of language when it relates to God and a failure of conception. Neoplatonists also think that when they use temporal language in their cosmology, you shouldn't take it temporally. And Neoplatonists think that when they use spatial language in their cosmology, you shouldn't take it spatially. I would say that perhaps at least 70% of summaries of Platinian ideas of, you know, whether it's in the history of philosophy or in a textbook or whatever, are going to say those three things. But the question is, what does that then mean for our sort of boldly approaching them as if what they're doing is, as I call it, invisible topography. If they're telling us that what they're doing is neither to be taken spatially nor temporally, it's a little bit flippant for us to simply satisfy ourselves with reading their entire discussion, making a chart on the blackboard or marker board or on our notes that have a bunch of floating see-through things, telling our class, oh, by the way, they're not really floating and they're not really things. And then moving on to the next chapter, we have to wrestle with the method. So that's to say in terms of content versus method, not only is the content different than what um, an empirical scientist might be doing who's involved with some study of cosmology, but in method, they are not trying to do the same thing that an empirical project is trying to do. And part of what that needs, so that's, I want to say at the very least, that's a very deep question that I urge everyone, including myself, as I continue to read Neoplatonism, to wrestle with from sentence to sentence. Now, I'm going to say how I view a sort of the beginning of the answer, but I actually think the, 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 the reminding of ourselves that we need to find an answer is more important than, well, the kind of answer I'm about to give, I think, is correct, but I don't think it sort of answers it fully. But I think we need to wrestle with the fact that what they're doing methodologically is not the same thing that a, a person who's looking at, you know, a, a, a late ancient commentator on Aristotle is doing when they're talking about prime matter, nor is it the same thing that a cosmologist is doing if what they're doing is somehow related to an empirical investigation. This is not to say that Neoplatonists are not at all interested in the empirical world, but it is to say that when we think about what is the question that drives them to talk about things like invisible um, not you know intelligible matter, and what is it that drives you know Ibn Gabirol in this same spirit to speak about a matter that lies at the heart of even intellect, um, and what is it that Plotinus is doing and that Ibn Gabirol is doing when they have all these layers and emanating one into the next, and you draw these things on the board for for students and for yourself, and in the back of your mind you say yeah yeah, yeah. well they don't mean it spatially. But what do they mean then? What are you are you honoring what they're doing methodologically by simply saying once in a while to yourself or even every minute to yourself? They don't mean it spatially or temporally. If they don't mean it spatially or temporally, you have a huge problem. You need to reapproach every single thing you think about what they're saying. So my attempt, of course, at an initial answer or the kind of answer is to move us methodologically to the idea of this paradox of divine unity, that what the Neoplatonist is struck by, and as to why they're struck by this and why certain people are struck by certain what we might call theological questions and why certain aren't, I, I, that's a very deep and interesting question that I continue to wrestle with when I read these texts. But they are struck by a kind of paradox at the core of human being, which they then see and talk about at the core of being, in which they then extend to the core of the God whom they themselves say is indescribable. The core paradox at the core of human being and at the core of being, which they also ascribe and, and primarily root into the paradox at the core of, of divine uh, disclosure, mm -hmm. is the idea 
that there is a compresence of a kind of not being and a kind of being. And that to me, um, again, is a very, it's a very, it's very hard to explain exactly like where does that question come from and why, for example, is Aristotle not moved by that question whereas Plotinus is? I think that is a very deep question, but it's a method question. It's a question about what is the kind of question that is motivating a discourse? Um, and I think one of the one of the real failures to read Neoplatonism uncharitably has to do with forgetting to ask that question, or at least forgetting to answer it charitably enough. And that's why I think you'll frequently find a chapter on Neoplatonism suddenly looks like a comic book with all kinds of pictures, and then you get to Aristotle, and then you start getting serious. Um, and so that's, I mean, I put that out of historical order. Well, if you're writing a history philosophy textbook the way I would, out of historical order, you would have your, your comic book chapter on Neoplatonism, and then you'd start getting serious in, in, in Aristotle. So the question is, where do we, what are the different methods? Um, and certainly I would hope that we would agree that it's not as if one of them ought to be called philosophical and one of them not. Um, although if people feel that what I'm describing is more of a theological method, I actually would disagree with that. But if that's how people want to say it, I guess as long as uh, somebody who feels that way doesn't critique Neoplatonism, I think I would be okay with that. Um, okay, well, um, there's a million other questions, but I think we are we are over, out of time. Um, so let me just end with a with the usual uh, closing question, which is what's what's your next project? Well, I'm actually involved um, in a project in a couple of projects. One of the projects um, is uh, looking at kind of some of the very broader implications of, of, of this project um, and sort of what's, I think, even not most relevant, but certainly a very relevant piece that comes out of this project, which is questions about methods for doing the history of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in addition to Ibn Gabirol being a really perfect case in point of a figure who has completely been mischaracterized in almost every history of philosophy and every scholarly discussion of him, um, I think that this speaks, and in relation to the last point that I was making, it speaks to a deeper need um, to, to, to force ourselves to read more charitably, and in particular, to force ourselves to read more charitably when we're doing um, histories of philosophy, and especially when we're entering into texts from people who are writing in cultures and religions that are different than our own. So this, to me, opens up a project um, part of what I'm looking at is, is um, Aristotle's conception of the pre- of so-called pre-Socratics, Avicenna's conception of certain so-called mystics, um, uh, Maimonides' conception of Jewish Neoplatonists, Aquinas' conception of Ibn Gabirol. I'm looking at examples in the history of philosophy where um, somebody critiques another group, but if you actually spend more time, you'll realize that the critique has nothing to do with what the other group is doing. So I find that to be a very sort of deep uh, and important project for myself um, that hopefully has um, some insights for others about sort of not taking too lightly what it means to enter into the concept space of another um, and the importance of charitable reading, which often can take 15 years to get to the right charitable space, but at least knowing when we read another text from another tradition that we really might not know what we're talking about. And so if we're going to critique another tradition, we should at least have a a caveat in there, you know, subject to 15 more years of consideration. (laughs) This idea looks pretty silly to me. So that's a kind of big project. Um, I'm also working now on the idea of Aristotelian prime matter in Ibn Gabirol and tracing a tradition of um, this notion of prime matter um, 
out of Aristotle into certain um, Neoplatonic traditions, um, different from the Neoplatonic tradition that we've been talking about, about a spiritual matter. There is also a tradition of Neoplatonic readings of Aristotelian prime matter um, that I'm tracing through Simplicius, um, through Plotinus and Simplicius, and also tying into Ibn Gabirol um, in way of reading other parts of Ibn Gabirol's Franz Vitae, where he's clearly not talking about this spiritual matter, and trying to make sense of how these different conceptions of Neoplatonic matter, both the kind that we spoke about today, this spiritual matter, but also a Neoplatonic conception of Aristotelian prime matter, which is also surprisingly different, I think, than how most people think of Aristotelian prime matter, and trying to sort of see uh, both how this plays out in Ibn Gabriel's Franz Vitae, but also, and back to that first project, trying to use that as a way of charitably deconstructing or reconstructing certain ways, I think, that certain ideas have been misunderstood in the history of philosophy. Okay, well, that sounds like uh, a lot to do, and I hope it won't take you 15 years. Um, I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, thank you for a, for a wonderful interview, um, and uh, I wish you luck in your, in your uh, coming projects. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Pesson, Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Emil and Eva Hecht Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Denver. We've been talking about her new book, Ibn Gabirol's Theology of Desire, Matter and Method in Jewish Medieval Neoplatonism, that's just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.